Well, good morning, everyone. I want you to get ready, because in a moment, I'm going to give you a second or two to give a testimony of praise, of thanksgiving for what God has done in your life. Um, before I get to that, though, I um, talked to an old friend of ours, uh, someone we haven't seen here at Agape for a number of years, uh, our brother Ed Cross. And Ed wanted me to say hello to everyone and let you know he misses you. Uh, Ed moved out of the area four or five years ago. Um, and he also wanted me to give a praise report. And that he said, I want everyone to know that I have been completely clean and sober from any type of substance for four years now. And he said, uh, I want you to do something else on my behalf, though. He said, um, as part of my recovery, I'm trying to make amends. And he said, a lot of people at church helped me when I was struggling. And he said, I want you to apologize because I did not always use the help that was given to me in the way that I said I was going to. And so on his behalf, I want to apologize. And uh, he wants to ask everyone's forgiveness. And I assured him, I, I said, I think I can speak for everyone that we forgive you. And we are just simply glad to hear that you are doing well. Amen. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 17, verse 22. It's going to be uh, our scripture for this morning. Uh, this is going to be my Thanksgiving sermon for the year. Um, but we're going to start there in Proverbs. I'm going to give you just a second or two. Uh, Proverbs 17, 22. And remember, think of something very quickly that you can get up, stand up, and give God thanks for. If you're there, let's stand and read from God's word this morning. Again, Proverbs 17, 22. I'll read it twice for you. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up bones. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up bones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for the joy that's here in this place. We thank you for the life that is here in this place, Lord, because you are here in this place. Lord, and despite uh, whatever we're going through, Lord, Lord, we can keep our eyes on you and we can give thanks because you are good. We worship you, Lord. We ask that you anoint this time, this preaching now. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to invite someone. Give a testimony of thanksgiving of praise this morning. Someone. Donna, go right ahead, nice and loud. was set up, I wouldn't be part of that inheritance. My three sister-in-laws, the 
which will completely clear my debt and give me plenty of money to put into the bank. Amen. Yes, he is. Praise the Lord. Yes, brother. Inside is the blowing light of God inside every single one of them. And so I want to, I, I will thank God that I can at least sometimes, sometimes reach one of them in one minute and show them that light. And that is my thanks to the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Someone else, quickly, Diane. Anyone else? Very quickly. Go ahead, Doug. Cindy? 
Amen. Yeah. Praise God. He does. And that is a perfect launching point for my sermon this morning. And so I want to talk, this is again my, my Thanksgiving sermon. Um, and I want to focus on one of the keys to being able to give thanks in every situation. Uh, to have what is perhaps a bit of a lame catchphrase, but an attitude of gratitude. Beyond that, I want to give you one of the keys to a happy, healthy lifestyle where we can look forward to a better future, even when the present is filled with difficulty. There is a biblical worldview that gives hope in every situation and propels us to give thanks no matter the circumstance. And so I want to, uh, I want to ask a question this morning. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? When you look at a glass of water or a bottle of water, is it half full or half empty? When you face the trials and problems of life, do you face them with hope or despair? You know, there's a big difference between an optimist and a pessimist. One poet put it this way. He said, between the optimist and the pessimist, the difference is droll. The optimist sees the donut the pessimist sees the whole. It's been well said that the optimist is the person who sees an opportunity in every calamity, while the pessimist sees a calamity in every opportunity. The optimist is the person that believes that this is the best of all worlds, and the pessimist fears that he might be right. The optimist is the person who drops his car off in the parking lot and then walks away without ever looking back. He's also the person that walks into a restaurant without any money, hoping to pay for his meal with the pearl he knows he'll find in the oyster he orders. <laughs> By contrast, the pessimist is the person who looks both ways before crossing a one-way street. 
How many of us do that? <laughs> Just don't trust them other drivers, do you? <laughs> In Brattleboro, that's probably... He's the man idea. who, when being faced with two evils, chooses them both. <laughs> both the optimist and the pessimist have their place in life. And perhaps we need a both of both perspectives in life. It was an optimist that invented the airplane who was sure that man could fly. But it was the pessimist who invented the parachute. <laughs> it takes all kinds to make a world. And we need optimists to keep us moving and pessimists to keep us moving in the right direction. So let me ask the question once again. Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Having already said that both optimism and pessimism have their place, I want to make a case for a well-reasoned biblical optimism as an outlook on life. Now, I realize there is such a thing as looking through rose-colored glasses. Everybody knows what that means. But that is not what I'm talking about. You know, any view of life that overlooks the dark side has missed really 50% of reality. And it's not some self-help or positive thinking affects your reality theology that I'm preaching this morning. Though, we'll explore the benefits of being optimistic in a few moments. There is such a thing as a biblical view of life. And it is a view that might well be called realistic optimism. The biblical view is realistic because it's founded on the truth that we live in a fallen and broken world. That's real. It's true. Biblical realism recognizes that we live in a very imperfect world where oftentimes very bad things happen to very good people. And sometimes good things happen to very bad people. We live in a world where cars crash and people die, where little babies get sick and school administrators sometimes mistreat our children. In this world, lawyers and politicians take bribes, doctors make mistakes, judges are biased, and sports stars and, and actors sometimes say really stupid things. Well, maybe they do that a lot of the time, but bad people win the lottery. And sometimes they get the girl or the guy. All too often, incompetent people are promoted over those who are qualified, and good people lose their jobs for no good reason. Biblical realism begins with Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we are all sinners, and because sin has affected every area of life and has touched every single one of us, we ought not be surprised when things don't go right. We live in a fallen world filled with fallen people. That's real. But that realism is not the final act. Beyond the truth of the fall is a greater truth that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It would be a terrible world if the final word was the fall of man. How could we live in such a world? But thank God, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, has intervened from heaven. 
And for the children of God, higher hands are at work on our behalf. That means even in the midst of the most terrible tragedies, God is at work bringing about a higher good. Sometimes that good can be seen right away. Sometimes it takes years to see that good that God is at work at. And believe it or not, sometimes we don't even get to see it. But it's there. We sang it earlier. You're always working. Even when I can't see it. Even when I can't feel it. Even when I don't know it. You're still at work for those, for good, for those that love God. But this much is clear. God is at work in all circumstances of life. The good and the bad, the positive and the negative, the happy and the sad, the up times and the down times, in our sickness and in our health. When things are going well and when things are falling apart, when we hit the jackpot or when the checkbook is empty, he's always there, patiently working behind the scenes for our ultimate good. Because that is true, there are true and solid grounds for biblical optimism. There is such a thing as Christian hope, a hope founded on the beneficent character of God himself. And hope in the end does not disappoint, meaning you may live to regret many things in this life, but the one thing you will never regret is putting your hope and the Lord of heaven. And so that's the case for realistic biblical optimism. A positive look on this life in a fallen world. It's not based, again, in self-helpism or any of the other solutions sold as remedies for the human condition. No, biblical optimism is based not on a man, but on God and his unchanging character and nature. And since it is based on his immutable character, it will stand the test of time. Does anybody recognize the name Norman Cousins? We got one. Anybody else? Two? Few people. He was a well known author and lecturer on the healing power of laughter. He came by that reputation after a life-threatening illness that attacked the connective tissue in his body. After an exhaustive series of tests, a top, uh, team of top medical experts gave him the diagnosis and basically said there was nothing they could do to help him. The illness was both chronic and progressive and would, they said, eventually take his life. Mr. Cousins is best remembered for a book he wrote over 10 years ago called Anatomy of an Illness. In it, he told the fascinating story of how, having received the gloomy prognosis from the doctors, he decided to take his treatment in his own hands. After checking out of the hospital, he put himself on a high-protein diet that included massive doses of vitamin C. Then he did something out that was outside of the medical mainstream. He set up a movie projector and screen in his bedroom. Then he rented every Marx Brother movie and every Three Stooges comedy he could find. And as he viewed the movies in his bedroom, he laughed and he laughed and he laughed his head off. And as he laughed, he made a startling discovery. Ten minutes of hearty belly laughter gave him an hour free of pain. 
So he'd take his vitamin C, he'd watch the Marx Brothers, laugh his head off, then relax free from the pain. And when the pain came back, he'd put on another comedy and do it all over again. Over time, he discovered that the more he laughed, the better he got. As the days and months passed, his symptoms slowly receded until they completely went into remission. Years later, he wrote Anatomy of an Illness in order to share his discovery with others. Now, lest you should think that Mr. Cousin was an eccentric creature, he was, in fact, one of the most respected writers in America and for many years was a faculty member at the UCLA School of Medicine. His basic conclusion was very simple. There is an intimate relationship between the way you look at life and your tendency to get sick or stay sick. Some people are actually factually sickness prone because of their negative, helpless, and pessimistic view of life. Others stay healthy even in terrible situations because of their positive, hope-filled, optimistic outlook. Cousins died of heart failure at the age of 75. Having survived years longer than his doctors predicted, 10 years after his first heart attack, 26 years after his collagen illness, and 36 years after his doctor first diagnosed his heart disease. But it was Dr. Solomon who made this connection first. You may wonder what all this has to do with biblical optimism. My answer is that the Bible speaks directly to this point in question. Listen again to the words that we started with from Proverbs 17.22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You're probably more familiar with the King James rendering of the first part of that verse. A merry heart doeth good like medicine. But if we take a look at the original Hebrew, it helps us dig out the message that Solomon wanted to give. In the Hebrew language, there is a verb form called the hiffle tense, and it's used when the writer wants to express causation, that one thing causes another. And when Solomon composed this verse in Proverbs 17:22, he used the hiffle tense to show causation. And a literal rendering of this verse might be, a cheerful heart causes good healing. Now that verse is 3,000 years old. Isn't it amazing how Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote something down that modern medical science is just beginning to discover? that a cheerful heart causes good healing. Though we don't understand it all, research, modern research, agrees with these ancient words of Solomon that there is a close relationship between the way you look at life and your own physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Leads me back to the place where I started. Are you an optimist? Or are you a pessimist? Your answer may tell a lot about how you're doing physically, spiritually, and mentally. Now again, we live in a fallen world. Sickness is real, amen? 
Suffering is real. Pain is real. But there is something, there is a difference that can be brought into our lives by having a cheerful, thankful heart and the way that we view things. And so what does your outlook on life, on God, say? How does it translate into the real world? Are you pessimistic? Do you believe that nothing good will ever happen to you? Do you know if you don't believe that anything good will ever happen to you, it won't? You know why? Because even if it did happen to you, you wouldn't believe it. You'd never recognize it. Do you believe the promises of God are only for other people? Do you doubt his character? With biblical optimism, optimism based on God's character, you can sit at an empty table and give thanks for God's provision. You know why? Because my Father in heaven owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The one that clothes the lilies of the field, the one whose eye is on the sparrow, surely he looks after me more. He's a good father, and when I ask him for bread, he's not going to give me a stone or a serpent. The dinner table might be empty. The checkbook might be out of money. But biblical optimism says my father can supply all my needs, and in the right moment, he will. You might say that's not realistic, is it? But faith, biblical optimism isn't based on sight. It's based on the character and the nature of the one in whom we have faith. Yes, the table is empty, but at any moment, God's provision might rain down out of heaven like manna. Just so long as it's not quail. (laughs) I often remind people God's provision often comes in the form of the opportunity to work. And if we don't take God upon his opportunity to work, Well, I don't think we should expect much more help coming. But the point is, God's nature and character is greater than the need that we have or see. Sick, hurting, dying. Biblical optimism says my miracle is just around the corner. If God opened blind eyes, if he caused deaf ears to hear, if he caused the lame to walk, if he even raised the dead, then he can surely do it for me. My miracle is on the way. You see, even if sickness gets a hold of us, even if we struggle with pain day after day, our miracle is on the way. One day, even if it's the day when we stand before him in glory, we're all going to be healed. If your outlook is one of pessimism, one that lacks faith, you're probably never going to take hold of the miracle that God may want to do in your life. Realism is okay. We understand that uh, what kind of world that we live in. It's full of sickness and disease. It's full of wicked men who do wicked things. The world is filled with trials and tribulations and injustice. We're going to endure hardship in this life. Sickness and death will come. That's being real. And while realism is okay, let me tell you what, pessimism is not. Believing that God isn't watching over us, believing that God isn't at work in the world and in our lives is not okay because he is. He's busy making a way where there is no way. 
He's busy turning graves into gardens, seas into highways, ashes into beauty. He makes bones into armies. Even when we can't see it, he's working. Always working, everything together for good for those that love God. I was thinking the other day as I was putting this together that what the pessimist must think is he looks at the world today. What the pessimist must think is he reads the book of Revelation. Economic disaster. Viruses running wild, killing people. Bombs and stars falling from the sky, World War III. Reads the book of Revelation, seals are being broken, trumpets are sounding, bowls of judgment are being poured out, bringing calamity. The pessimist sees uh, seas and oceans and rivers turning into blood, the Antichrist beheading believers. He sees a quarter of humanity dying and then a third of humanity dying again, and he trembles. The pessimist sees the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding across the globe. Do you know what the optimist sees when he reads the book of Revelation and looks at the world? The king is coming. And he's going to bring victory. And all this bad stuff is going to be washed away. The prince of peace is going to reign on the earth. And we're all going to see him face to face. And what a day that's going to be. See, there's a great difference between the way the optimist and the pessimist looks at the world. It's the same attitude that we should face any trial or tribulation in this life with. The Bible says we're to count it joy to share in his suffering. Jesus said, don't be surprised when trials and tribulations and people hate you and this stuff comes upon you. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. But it's okay. Because Jesus is with me. And what did we sing earlier? He changes everything. How do you view life? It really depends on how you view God. If he is faithful and loves you, if you believe he has a wonderful plan for your life, then you should be of good cheer and have a thankful, expectant heart. Your prevailing worldview should be one of optimism. So I want to give you a couple of closing statements. Number one, biblical optimism is possible because it's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and not on our circumstances. That's a crucial principle to grasp because you may be facing difficult circumstances and your tendency might be to say, he's not talking about my life. You may be going through a tough time financially and you think, I'm never getting out of this hole I'm in. Your marriage might be in trouble and divorce may seem the only option. You might be on the verge of losing your job or already lost your job or your health. Maybe a dream you pursued for many years is dead. They may be trouble in your family or at school on the job, and as you can survey the situation, you can't find any grounds for encouragement. It doesn't matter. It's still possible to be optimistic because biblical optimism rests on the promises of the gospel and not on your circumstances. And as long as the gospel is true, and it is, you have a reason to be optimistic in every situation, 
even those that seem hopeless. Two, biblical optimism is possible because God's work in your life is a process. This brings us back to Romans 8.28. What is the good for which all things are working together? In the context, as we read the other scriptures around that particular one, the good is becoming more and more like Jesus. It's not that every day is going to be like Christmas morning. It's that we're going to be made into Him's image. That means whatever happens to you is meant by God to ultimately contribute to the ultimate goal of you someday becoming like Jesus, reflecting his character in all you say and do. For most of us, it's a lifelong process. I don't know about you, but he's still working on me. But that perspective changes the way we look at disappointment and discouragement. If God's number one goal is to make me like Jesus Christ, then there are lessons that he has to teach me, and some of those come through hard times and hard things. God's work in your life is the process of chipping away at your weak points and slowly developing the character of Jesus within you. But that means there is tremendous tremendous grounds for optimism even in the worst situations. Because even the hard times mean that God is hard at work in you to make you more like his son. Nothing is wasted. Nothing that happens to you is meant to destroy you. Even the attacks and slanders of your enemies are allowed by God for a higher purpose in your life. Everything has a purpose. Everything. The fact that you don't always see it doesn't negate this fact. So be encouraged. God is at work in your life, especially in the hard times. Number three, biblical optimism is possible because God's promises go beyond this life. There may one day be a day when they put you in a box and close the lid. My father loves to say last time he checked, one out of every one dies. You might find yourself six feet underground, but one day the lid is going to fly open as Jesus cries your name and says, come forth out of that grave. Eternity is yours if you have believed and received salvation from the Lord. You see, that's the difference between biblical optimism and positive thinking. Positive thinking ends at the grave. Biblical optimism goes on for all eternity. Again, because it's based on the promises of God. The eternal promises of God which go beyond this life to the life that is to come. That's the bottom line, isn't it? It's possible to face even the worst that life has to offer. And to face it with hope and optimism because the promises of God go beyond the grave. Think about it. In eternity, there's no more cancer. No more sickness. No more Alzheimer's. No more um, wars and tragedy. No more poverty. In eternity, there's only the warmth and joy of seeing Yeshua, Jesus, face 
to face. Knowing him, enjoying his presence forever. You see, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And so are you excited about your future? Well, let me tell you, you ought to be. Are you optimistic about your future? Well, you ought to be if you're a child of God. You ought to be excited and you ought to want to give him thanks at every moment. You see, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, Jesus is taking care of your past. He takes care of your presence. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm right there with you. And he's taking care of our future. Because he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. But if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so if you're a child of God this morning, you're in good hands. Again, your past is forgiven, your present is secure, and your future is guaranteed. Because for the child of God, the best is yet to come. So be thankful this morning. Nathan and Noah, uh, worship team, if you'd come on back. Let's stand as we just uh, begin to close. Do you believe God is a good God? I don't think you were loud enough. Do you believe God is a good God? That sounded much better. We give you thanks here in this place today, Lord, with joyful hearts. With thankful hearts, Lord, that we know your character, we know your nature, and it is a good character and nature. And that you are a loving, merciful God. And a God who is working all things to good for those of us who love you. And we proclaim that we love you, Lord. Lord, we love you in the good times. We love you in the bad times. And we praise you, Lord, in every circumstance. Because you are worthy. We worship you. You are here. Moving in the midst. Worship you. I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. You are here, touching every heart, touching every heart. Worship you. Worship 